This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A Wisconsin judge ruled today that his previous order banning the practice of ballot curing will stand ahead of the November election. The Associated Press reports that Democrats look to stay the ruling until after the election and allow ballot clerks to fill in missing address information on witness certification envelopes for absentee ballots. The Waukesha County judge declared that the Wisconsin Elections Commission must revoke its guidance allowing clerks to cure absentee ballots. Democrats are expected to appeal that ruling, and it's expected to end up before the state Supreme Court, although it's unlikely that it will be taken up before the November midterm election. The Department of Natural Resources is launching an effort to regulate PFAS, commonly known as forever chemicals, in Wisconsin's groundwater. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, Governor Tony Evers last week signed a scope statement proposing the addition of four different PFAS chemicals to the list of contaminants regulated by the state's groundwater law. Typically, the rulemaking process takes 30 months. In 2019, the DNR initiated a similar effort to add two PFAS compounds, PFOA and PFOS, to official groundwater contaminants, but that was thwarted by the Natural Resources Board, which killed the proposed regulations earlier this year. The list of contaminants has not been updated since 2011. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency issued new warnings in June that exposure to two of the chemical compounds, PFOA and PFOS, are unsafe at almost all levels. A storm system brought nearly 10 inches of rain to parts of southeast Wisconsin between Sunday and Monday, causing flooding across the region. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that rainfall totals were highest in the southern portion of the Milwaukee metro area, with Racine seeing a total of 9.76 inches of rain. Downpours caused the temporary closure of a portion of I-94 in Waukesha County on Monday and led to sewage overflows in Milwaukee. Water damage restoration companies reported being overwhelmed with requests to respond to residential properties. The weather is expected to be sunny and dry during the rest of this week and hopefully give the region an opportunity to dry out. More rain is potentially on the way though, starting Friday evening and continuing into the weekend. At a meeting yesterday, Madison's Finance Committee expressed ambivalence about whether the city should help to close an over $5 million funding gap for the proposed Madison public market. Last week, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway proposed a capital budget for 2023 that included approved funding for the project, but not the additional money needed to close the financing gap. Members of the City Council expressed concern about the market's proposed location and the importance of reserving funds to address the needs of Madison's South Side. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The funding gap is expected to delay construction and may ultimately compromise the project's completion. Students in Madison High Schools had pizza for lunch today. Yesterday, they had pizza as well. And every day last week, you guessed it, pizza. The Madison Metropolitan School District is coming under fire from parents who say the schools lack more nutritious options for school lunches, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. School administrators say that staffing shortages and supply chain issues are to blame for the repeated lunches. But parents say that they were not informed about this issue, leaving their children to have pizza or a turkey and cheese snack kit for lunch every day. As for their fresh fruits and vegetables, one school listed their side option as dried cranberries as their fresh fruit of the day. The district said these lunches are meeting the federal nutritional standards for school lunches. 
And now for today's COVID-19 numbers. There were 977 new COVID cases reported in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the state to an average of 1,056 new reported cases every day over the past week. Additionally, an average of 10.8% of all reported COVID-19 tests came back positive over the past week. There were eight new confirmed deaths from the virus reported in Wisconsin yesterday. That brings the state to a total of 13,415 people confirmed to have died of COVID in Wisconsin since the pandemic began. Here in Dane County, there were 112 new COVID cases reported yesterday as community spread levels, as assessed by the CDC, have dropped down to low levels. Meanwhile, there are 56 people currently hospitalized from the virus in Dane County. And now on to today's top stories. When a survey aiming to find students' thoughts about free speech on University of Wisconsin Systems campuses was announced last year, it was met with backlash and was later shelved. But this survey will be making its return this school year with some minor changes. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has the update. A free speech survey will soon be headed to all UW System students. This comes after the survey was shelved last spring after the survey garnered controversy over how the survey would be worded. Former UW-Whitewater Interim Chancellor Jim Henderson resigned over his objection to the survey. In an interview with WKOW last week, System President Jay Rothman said that the survey will be going forward this fall, but has not given an exact date for when it will be released to the students. The survey is funded by the UW Stouts Menard Center for the Student of Institutions and Innovation, a Charles Koch Foundation-funded group focused on promoting the study and discussion of several liberties and related institutions. The survey itself is set to be administered by the Wisconsin Institute for Public Policy and Service, which is also an extension of the UW system. Proponents of the survey say that the survey will help gather honest information on free speech on campus, and that the university will then be able to use that information to create improvements to the university as a whole. But back in April, detractors criticized the project, saying it had political motivations, mainly that the questions were phrased to suggest targeting of students by liberal professors. MGR Govindarayan is the Legislative Affairs Committee Chair with ASM, the student government body of UW-Madison. He tells WORT that, while the current ASM has not taken an official stance on the survey this semester, they are still concerned with how the survey will be handled. He said that the questions the survey released last year can be misleading and are written in a way where a desired answer is obvious. This includes questions such as, quote, how often have you felt pressured by a professor to agree with a specific political or ideological opinion being expressed in class, end quote. Govindarayan went on to say that neither the Menard Center nor the Wisconsin Institute for Public Policy have reached out to ASM, despite ASM asking to talk with them about the poll several times. But Allie Waite, a student at UW-Stevens Point and member of the university's Student Government Association, says that she has been in contact with the authors of the poll. She said that while she still has some concerns about the free speech survey, the authors have been willing to change questions and have been responsive to their concerns. 
Waite tells WORT that the Stephen Point Student Government Association is taking the survey seriously and won't be sending out a survey until they have reviewed it beforehand. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. It's now 6.15 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. It's not uncommon to see help wanted signs in the windows of businesses these days or hear people on social media express that nobody wants to work anymore. But is that true? Well, according to a new report from a UW-Madison think tank, Wisconsin workers are more motivated than ever to find work. Additionally, its research found that more unions across the state are winning elections and gaining ground for workers' rights. Earlier today, WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout spoke with Laura Dresser, associate director with the UW-Madison's think tank named COWS. That's about its new report about the state of working Wisconsin. Union support has reached the highest it's been in nearly 60 years, and more unions are winning elections than they have in 20 years. That's according to a new report by the UW-Madison think tank COWS with their 2022 State of Working Wisconsin report. Joining me now is Laura Dresser, Associate Director of COWS and one of the authors of the new report. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for talking with me here today. I appreciate being here. Thanks for having me. So, Laura, let's just sort of start things off here. Uh, can you tell me a little bit what is COWS going off this uh, most recent report? I take it that you are not a uh, cheese or dairy-based organization. Uh, Indeed, no. Yeah, yeah look, at what, <laughs> what do you guys do? What is COWS? Um, COWS is a research center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, sometimes we call ourselves a think and do tank. We do um, a lot of analysis and thinking like a standard uh, think tank might do, but we also do some very engaged and active work with the people who can make the changes that we think the world needs. And so CAS does projects to help build the high road and make it more possible to pursue equity, sustainable sustainability and democracy, um, both in the state and all around the nation. We work a lot with mayors um, through one project, and we work with transportation through another project. But for the state of working Wisconsin, that's really focused on work and wages in the state of Wisconsin. And it's a report that we've written since um, the first one was released in 1996. Okay, so a long-running report here. So let's let's go into that now. Let Tell me a little bit about that report, sort of just sort of broadly, what did you find is currently going on with Wisconsin workers? Sure. Um, we tend to look pretty hard at uh, the situation in jobs and employment, the situation in wages, the situation for unions, and from that, 
try and build a picture about what's going on. And we're always attending to two things, like what's it like in the middle of the labor market, but what are disparities like as well? And we've documented for years both real problems in the middle of the labor market, is middle of the labor market, like stagnant wages, and real problems in the distribution of opportunity, like our uh, ruinous and um, sometimes worse in the nation, racial disparities. So all along, we've documented that kind of work. But I feel like the picture for 2022, um, while we still attend to the long-term, um, the long-term issues and the deep disparities that exist in the economy, what we find is that this year of opportunity that is um, something that workers are really seizing. Workers are... Um, kind of demanding more from work. Some of them are doing that by um, just looking for a new job. Some of them are doing that by staying in their current job, but demanding more from it because their exit threat is so credible now. Some of them are doing that by organizing with workers who are at their work sites, sometimes in formal ways as they go to a union process or sometimes in informal ways. But you can see evidence in this year of the ways that workers are asking more from work. And I think that's um, kind of the, the most positive <laughs> set of indicators I've seen in a, in a very long time of writing this report. And so, as you mentioned there, sort of the uh, unionization and the Wisconsin workers specifically unionizing is definitely sort of the biggest eye raiser with this new report. And you do provide a couple of examples of Wisconsin workplaces uh, unionizing. I believe you talk about uh, Starbucks and uh, the Raven Software Company down here uh, in uh, the Madison area. So just sort of go into that for a little bit for me. Why why are uh, more workplaces here in Wisconsin uh, beginning to organize? I mean, I think we've seen this national trend. Uh, there has been a national kind of attention to Starbucks and Apple and um, and the Amazon warehouse in New York, of course. And all of this made this sort of a, a, a year where people saw organizing. Um, and, you know, Wisconsin is very unfriendly to organizing. The Act 10 uh, that uh, Scott Walker and the Republican legislature passed um, really made it hard to do public sector worker organizing. Soon after that, they passed what is often called right to work um, uh, uh, that makes private sector unionization much, much harder. But even then, you know, even in spite of how hard it is to organize in this state and how these policies work against organizing, um, you can see, um, you know, like you said, uh, uh, quality assurance and uh, in the game industry at Raven um, just won a union contract and is moving towards bargaining. Um, there are star four Starbucks locations in the state of Wisconsin, but also you know, that was preceded by the organizing of Colectivo, which, um, you know, finally is now moving towards a contract uh, after a kind of uh, delayed, uh, a, a company delay tactic um, over the years. But really, if you're thinking about some of the roots of coffee shop organizing, it actually started, or, you know, that, that work at Colectivo re, uh, uh, predates this, the, take, the way that Starbucks took off. Um, 
We've seen a lot of organizing by nurses, both in Meritor Hospital, where workers are represented, nurses are represented, but also this week, um, you know, big, big progress for UW um, hospital nurses who are demanding representation at work. And so all of those we profile. Um, and then also, we had a panel last week that included workers that are being supported by Worker Justice Wisconsin. And these are workers who not are, are not always formally pursuing union certification, though some of them are, but who are working together and demanding more work. And that's in a print shop and in a hotel as well. And so you can hear that that's like a lot of places that we don't think of as the strongholds of the labor market. It's cooks, it's nurses, it's print shop workers, it's um, uh, entertainment venue workers. And so that's exciting as well. And you mentioned the wage inequality. So now let's get into that a little bit. So obviously another portion of this report talking about wages here in Wisconsin. Uh, and you mentioned before uh, income inequality and wage inequality here in Wisconsin. And I, I thought your report had some really interesting statistics concerning uh, how wages have changed since 1979 for white, black, and Hispanic men and white, black, and Hispanic women. What can you, what can you sort of tell me about that? Yeah. Um, so there's, I, I, you know, there's a lot of names and I'll try and, you know, kind of for radio, maybe it's hard to keep track of all the vectors and the timelines, but you know, the first thing is just the current level of inequality and people understanding how much wage inequality, um, there is even at this current moment in time, um, uh, white men are, earn the highest median wages of those six groups that you mentioned. That's about $23 an hour. Um, white women earn the second highest wages at about $21 an hour, median wage of about $21 an hour. And the median is the, you know, kind of, and this is all workers. This includes salaried and hourly pay workers. Um, $5 an hour behind uh White men are black men, Hispanic men, and black women, and then another dollar and a little bit behind that um, are Hispanic women at the median. So that's pretty substantial inequality in the current moment. If you had looked at inequality in 1979 and I had told you the order of wages, it would have been men and then women, black men, uh, white men, black men, and Hispanic men having wages all sort of at a higher level than white women, black women, and Hispanic women. And so there's been a kind of 40 year, uh, you know, more than 40 year um, kind of shift in the hierarchy in the labor market from one that was much more related to an underlying dynamic of um, gender disparity to a current dynamic where the inequality runs, um, you know, that, that, the, that workers of color are behind, black and brown workers are behind white workers, both men and women. And so now just to uh, sort of wrap things up here, one of the final parts of your report are talking about jobs here in Wisconsin. And your job section uh, does start off with uh, talking about the uh, myth of the great resignation. Tell me tell me a little bit about that. Are, are people leaving their jobs in droves here in Wisconsin? Yeah, well, so here's the, here's the thing. I mean, I think a year ago there was a kind of a lot of ob- observation and, and a kind of media uh, focus on the idea 
both that workers were leaving their jobs, but also it is sort of implied that they were leaving work. The great resignation sounded a little bit to many people, I think, like people are just not interested in work. Uh, and what I want to say in the state of Wisconsin, um, you know, there's just no evidence that people are not interested in work right now. Uh, the labor force participation rate of adults, you know, in the labor market, the share of adult people that are actively engaged in the labor market is higher today than it was before the pandemic. Um, the, the total number of workers in the workforce hit a high this summer. So Wisconsinites really haven't stepped out of work. It is true. They have left their jobs. So there is a lot of turnover in the labor market. They have left their jobs to get better jobs, right? So while there is a lot of churn and a lot of, um, of quitting in the labor market, there is also a lot of hiring. And so that's the part that the, I think the Great Resignation kind of distracted from the fact that this wasn't leaving work. This was getting to better work, workers moving up. So that's, um, that's sort of the, the theme from the jobs section. Now, Laura, we're just sort of scratching the surface of this report here, but we are sort of running up against the clock. So do you have just any any final thoughts that you would like people to know about this report? Well, I'd love folks to um, you know go and explore the data and think about these different issues um, up at uh, workingwi.org is where we keep um, this report and all the past ones. Um, and I think thinking, you know, we have to simultaneously see that workers are really demanding more from work right now, and that matters, and it um, uh, and encouraging that and having solidarity uh, with workers that are doing that really matters for people who are trying to help move this economy forward. But it isn't, it doesn't overcome these deep disparities and the the deep issues in the labor market. It's just a kind of moment of uh of some potential but it really matters that workers uh continue to do this that policy comes in and to support workers and that we all um kind of continue to demand that work work for working people i've been talking with laura dresser associate director of cows over at uw madison and one of the authors on the new state of working wisconsin report uh like laura said you can find that full report online over at workingwi.org laura thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today thank you for having me Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal call producer Hope Carnop spoke with city news writer Francesca Pica about the status of State Street as the new academic year begins. And so the question is, will these new developments be able to help house a lot of the students that are coming here and kind of looking for a place to live. Hello and welcome. 
welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by city news writer Francesca Pica to discuss the latest developments on the 400 block of State Street. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Can you give us an overview of the changes happening on the 400 block of State Street? Okay, so the businesses located on the 400 block of State Street have currently moved to other locations because of a proposal to develop um, essentially like a new housing development slash restaurant center on the 400 block of State Street. You talked to Steve Manley, who's the owner of B-Side Records for this article. Where is he relocating to and what were his thoughts on the moving process? So Steve Manley was able to find a, another location on State Street. He is moving to the 500 block. So Manley had kind of been expecting being like having to move because he had been living like on a month-to-month lease. Manley said he would be willing to pay the higher rent costs to stay on State Street just because um, of how he felt his business was tied to the identity of State Street and how he didn't want to lose the foot traffic and the clientele that State Street offered. How have J.D. McCormick's building plans changed and what is the current status of their proposal? Um, So in February, J.D. McCormick um, presented their plans to the Urban Design Commission. The original J.D. McCormick proposal would include 23 to 26 apartment units and on the first and second floor there would be commercial space for They're hoping a restaurant, but it would be kind of a wider open commercial space instead of the smaller, like, individual small businesses that used to be located on the block. Their plans initially were sort of more of a modern-looking kind of glass front, but um, members of the commission voiced their, like, opposition to essentially, they believed it would kind of erode the character of State Street, kind of the old-school feel. J.D. McCormick has yet to submit their new designs. Once they'll do that, they'll, they'll be back up for approval for the urban, by the Urban Design Commission. J.D. McCormick says that their development would essentially address um, kind of what they saw as an increase in vacancies. And they said that the, their development would help kind of increase economic activity on State Street and bring more business to the area. You also talked to District 2 Alder Patrick Heck about this project. What were his thoughts on the state of the proposal? Um, Alder Heck said that essentially it's J.D. McCormick's move at this point. The um, Urban Design and Plan Commission are still waiting for the resubmission of their plans. When they first presented their plans, he did voice some concern about um, the demolition of the older State Street buildings on the 400 block. What did Manley and Heck have to say about how this project might sort of change the character of State Street? Heck, in particular, kind of worried that essentially like the new modern glass house looking types of buildings that have been coming up on State Street would kind of erode the character and like the feel of State Street. That State Street had these has these old buildings built in the 1800s that even if they aren't like marked as having the highest historical values, they still comprise of like the character of State Street. Heck said that he wouldn't necessarily be opposed to tearing down some of the buildings and building newer ones in their place, that continuing to do so would maybe be detrimental to State Street. 
How do you think these changes could affect the student population downtown, specifically in terms of the businesses that students like to go to? So the businesses themselves on the 400 block have all been able to find locations on State Street. So they're staying on State Street. They've moved, I believe, farther down. So they're a bit farther away from kind of the main center of campus. Um, But the businesses themselves are staying. The question kind of is about the buildings that are being built right now. Um, This one, um, the McCormick proposal and the core spaces one are mostly housing. The question is, are they affordable housing for students? Would they be kind of a viable option for them? And would they would, it, would they be attractive for students to live in those locations? You also wrote a piece last year for our action project about the changing face of State Street. Do you think the changes to the 400 block are part of that trend? Um, I think so. Um, the course spaces proposal last year um, included the demolition of a bunch of older buildings on State Street. and in its place they're going to be building more luxury apartments and that's kind of the same thing as what's being proposed by Jamie McCormick. A lot of um, studio apartments and um, I believe a commercial space for a restaurant on the first floor but it's a lot of housing and I think that might be part of a trend as Madison itself and the downtown area especially is struggling with um, kind of keeping up with the booming population and so the question is will these new developments be able to help house a lot of the students that are coming here and kind of looking for a place to live. Frankie, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your reporting with us. Thank you. In other campus news, anti-Semitic chalk messages were left around campus on the first day of classes. UW officials denounced the messages, but acknowledged that they represent free speech. They said that statements targeting students or other student groups are not against the law or campus policy, but, quote, violate our norms and actively work against the culture of belonging for which we are striving. Multiple organizations within the Jewish community at UW responded to the incident. UW Hillel said that the targeting of student organizations because of their connections to Israel is an attack on the identity of Jewish students. The university responded to other anti-Semitic incidents on campus earlier this spring, including a swastika that was etched into a bathroom stall in Celery Residence Hall. Around 13% of the student population at UW-Madison is Jewish, according to Hillel. UW-Madison's Public History Project opened its exhibition at the Chazen Museum of Art yesterday. Sifting and Reckoning, UW-Madison's History of Exclusion and Resistance runs through December 23rd. The project includes archival objects, photographs, and oral history to center historically silenced voices. It spans nearly two centuries and covers the university's academics, athletics, student life, housing, and more. The project originated from a 2018 study commissioned by former Chancellor Rebecca Blank to investigate two student groups in the 1920s that bore the name of the Ku Klux Klan. At an exhibit preview, the university's chief diversity officer noted that UW is a microcosm of society and not a vacuum. The project began work in fall 2019 and is expected to end in mid-summer 2023. UW-Madison moved up in the U.S. News and World Report's rankings this year. 
UW ranked 38th overall and 10th among public institutions. Both of those rankings were three-way ties. Chancellor Jennifer Mnuchin said that rankings are only one measure of excellence, but said she was pleased to see many areas of success reflected. The rankings are based on indicators including faculty resources, financial resources, and graduation and retention rates. UW has an 89% six-year graduation rate and a 95% first-year retention rate. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg heads out on a hike to help identify Wisconsin's different kinds of palm warblers. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about a very special species of warblers, the palm warbler. And I am talking about palm warblers right now because we have two of them in our care in rehabilitation at our facility, and it's not a species we get admitted very often. We've actually only had five palm warblers admitted since 2016, which is not many considering two of them are here with us in 2022. So it's a species we know are around Wisconsin and that come through our area, especially the Midwest during the migratory period, but we don't often see them coming into rehabilitation for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of times warblers are going to hit windows or window strikes or cars or get trapped and exhausted during the migration season, which is a very common incidence, which is really, really sad. And palm warblers tend to be one of those that have a high incident rate of getting themselves injured but most likely it's going to end up with a mortality. So palm warblers are known for uh, potentially flying into windows or buildings, reflective material. And unfortunately, a lot of our uh, folks that are out there surveying, like our Madison Audubon Bird Collision Corps, uh, for example, are out um, and picking up lots of species like this. And palm warblers are definitely in that category. So we don't see very many palm warblers that actually end up coming into rehabilitation because they are only injured and still able to be hopefully saved. Uh, but we have two very lucky candidates that are here, uh, one with a wing girdle or shoulder girdle fracture and some missing tail feathers, um, and another one that has just recently moved outside, which is very exciting. So hopefully it's going to be a short stay for that bird, and hopefully the two of them will be able to uh, join together so that we can release the two of them at the same time, since they are a type of species and, you know, warblers in general that like to flock. And in the this time period, they are together with lots of other warblers, a lot of times kinglets, uh, and a couple of key species like yellow rumped warblers if you're ever out there looking for them. The other uh, reason that I wanted to talk about palm warblers is because I've seen a lot of them outside and it's migration time. And this week when I was out for a walk here, uh, 
not in Dane County. I was actually out uh, in a different county of southern Wisconsin walking around and looking for warblers. I spotted about 10 of them on one single road. Uh, and palm warblers are one of those very difficult species to sometimes identify for folks. And so I thought I would help to identify or talk about some identifying characteristics since they are difficult. And the palm warbler is one of my favorite because they are very brightly colored. And they also have a really fun behavior. It's their tail bobbing or tail pumping. And so you can almost always know a palm warbler by the way it's acting and in where the habitat is that they're, you know, living, maybe nesting, or just in general where they're residing during the migratory period. So palm warblers are usually in boggy areas or areas that have a lot of like evergreen or coniferous trees. Uh, a lot of thick ground cover in general, and this is, you know, according to obviously the Cornell University All About Birds. Definitely check it out if you've never been to allaboutbirds.org. You can find a lot of information about most of these species. A lot of forest edge areas, places where they're going to find lots of insects, and especially towards the ground. So they're the type of warbler that actually spends more time on the ground compared to other warblers. A lot of the other warblers might be very high up in the treetops. But I like to find these guys on the ground, in the grass, in goldenrod, in other plant and prairie species, uh, again, near uh, heavy woodland areas, which is really neat. They pick up those insects from the ground or out of shrubs and other plant material, but then uh, sometimes they will obviously fly around midair like the aerial insectivores that they are. So that's about where they're located. But honestly, forests, marshes, prairies, they, they are found a lot of different places. They are very cool because while they're sitting on the ground or on a plant or something like that, their tail will move up and down in just this little kind of jerk motion, kind of like the bobber. If you're a fisherman, you know, you see the bobber just kind of pump. So that tail pumping is just is very indicative. So if you see that and you see it's a really small bird that maybe has some yellow coloration, then it could be a palm warbler, especially because palm warblers are very small. So the palm warblers on the underbelly, if you are looking up from a tree, uh, from, uh, from underneath above, the palm warbler has uh, the underbody coloration with yellow, and the, there's something called the undertail coverts that I thought I would talk about. So birds have tail feathers, which are the retrices, generally about 12 of them. And uh, on the underside of the bird, uh, kind of covering their, I like to call it their butt area, you know, the fuzzy butt. They, they have these beautiful covert feathers kind of covering the base of their retrices or their tail. And those undertail coverts are really great for identifying warblers because a lot of them have different patterns that are very clear and identifiable. So the palm warbler has yellow undertail coverts and its tail usually has some black and then some stripes or spots of white. But then also in if you go towards the head underneath the, the underbelly, it goes from yellow to a little bit of white and then kind of goes back to yellow again towards the chest. And they're much more strongly colored in the springtime when it's the breeding season. So right now they're considered the drab fall warblers, uh, but you can still definitely see that yellow in palm warblers and they have yellow feet, which is really cool. You don't get to see that up close very often, but they do. And uh, they also have in the springtime, especially they'll show that nice chestnut cap, which is uh, very helpful for identifying them. The redness in that cap really does make uh, quite a bit of a difference to be able to say, oh, that's a palm warbler. Okay, that's pretty cool. So if you were to compare the palm warbler to some other warblers that have yellow undertail coverts, they might be more similar to the magnolia warbler, but the undertail coverts are bright white. Maybe you're looking at an American red start that's a female, and there's white plus yellow on the tail. So that one's going to be a little bit different. 
Um, and then we also have some species like the morning warbler, the Connecticut warbler, and the Kentucky warbler, which have just straight yellow. That is all the color is on the underbelly and the undertail coverts. So there's no deviation there. You have to look for other identifying factors then besides the underbody or the underbelly to be able to tell what species it is. So for palm warblers, again, we're talking about behavior for identifying them, the tail bobbing behavior, uh, the yellow undertail coverts, the black with white spotting on the tail, and the fact that they like to forage more down in the ground more than the trees and the high treetops. Uh, and we have a couple of those palm warblers here in care, which are super exciting species for us. So we hope that their rehabilitation is quick and that we're able to get them out and on migration before they would leave Wisconsin at the end of October. So definitely send them some positive vibes and hopefully we'll get them through their recovery period. If you find a sick or injured bird or any other animal, give us a call at the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening here on WORT and this has been Wildlife Weekly. now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Have you ever gone into a funhouse and laughed about how your reflection can be distorted in a mirror? Well, it's no clowning around that it does happen in space as well. This week on Radio Astronomy, host Estefani Torres Villanueva looks closely at the phenomenon known as gravitational lensing. My name is Stephanie Torres Villanueva. I am a graduate student at the UW Madison's Department of Astronomy. And today we're going to be talking about the topic of gravitational lensing in astronomy. This method is at the heart of one of the new stunning images released by the James Webb Space Telescope earlier this summer of the redefined and enhanced Hubble Deep Field image of hundreds to thousands of galaxies within a space as small as a grain of sand held at arm's length in the sky. So let's get started. First, we'll talk about lenses. We encounter lenses in microscopes, telescopes, and everyday objects like prescription glasses or magnifying lenses. They work by, well, magnifying or distorting the images we see around. Likewise, we get similar magnification or lensing in outer space and throughout the universe. In this case, the lens, instead of being a magnifying glass or prescription glasses, is one that is caused by nature. This is gravity, like the gravity that you and I feel every day living on Earth. But when we talk about gravitational lensing in space, the amount of gravity is far greater than what we experience every day on Earth. 
gravitational lensing happens in space when a large amount of matter, like a star, a galaxy, or even a group or cluster of galaxies generates a massive gravitational field around it that is so strong that it will even bend light coming from distant galaxies or stars behind the object. This allows us to see the galaxies or other astronomical objects that would otherwise be hidden by the foreground galaxies or just too far away to observe. When these images are observed, however, they tend to look a bit distorted, like the image you would see of yourself through a funhouse mirror, for example. But the idea of having light bend around a massive body due to the body's gravity is possible for us to point out and understand thanks to Einstein's theory of general relativity, which he derived in 1915. At the heart of Einstein's theory of general relativity is the fact that matter distorts the fabric of space and time around it. This implies that gravity bends light waves or curves their path around massive objects in space like stars, groups of galaxies, or even black holes. We can picture this interaction best by imagining a bowling ball dropped on a trampoline. When we do this, the bowling ball curves or distorts the space around it on the trampoline. Similarly, in space, a black hole or any other massive object, like a group of galaxies, can act as that bowling ball and in fact distorts the space around them. This may be a little bit difficult to grasp at first because as humans, we are wired to see in three dimensions and always think of light as traveling in a straight line. But if we think back to the funhouse mirror analogy, we can sort of imagine how under non-regular circumstances, light can curve and not travel in a straight line. To use gravity as a lens, we need three things. We need the source we're trying to observe, the lens, and an observer. The source can be a star, a black hole, a galaxy, or even a group of galaxies in the distant universe. The lens can also be the same thing, like a star, a black hole, a galaxy or a group of galaxies as well. For the observer, in this case, we would need a telescope since humans could not possibly resolve such distant sources. Now, when the source, the lens and observer are aligned and the lens and the source are spherically symmetric, we will see this phenomenon called an Einstein ring. This phenomenon was first observed in 1998 by the Hubble Space Telescope at this time, the Hubble telescope picked up light from a dark dwarf galaxy, which was bent around a larger, more massive galaxy in the foreground. This leads to the information of smeared out ring, which confirmed a theory of general relativity that Einstein had posed almost 80 years ago. Using gravitational lensing, we have been able to confirm and weigh many previously unseen galaxies in the universe. It is also helping astronomers in detecting dark matter, which is a type of matter that does not interact with light, but nevertheless has its own mass. And it seems to be the main source of matter in the universe. Since it does not have mass, however, even if we can't detect dark matter with any form of electromagnetic light, the mass of dark matter will bend light around it. Gravitational lensing is a tool readily used by the Dark Energy Survey, which aims to understand the distribution of dark matter around the universe. It is also something that we are able to see in James Webb's first deep field image of the galaxy cluster SMACS0723, which was released earlier in July of this year. Thanks to gravitational lensing, we have been able to use this as a powerful tool that has revolutionized our way of observing and understanding the cosmos.
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Kristen Billings. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal, and the Radio Astronomy crew. Super Dave Lawrence and engineered the show. Nate Waggyhout produces newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast wherever you follow podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrico Patio. Good night.